Father, we come before you presenting our tithes and our offerings with glad and cheerful hearts because we come as recipients of your grace, knowing that every good gift has first come from your hand. We think we possess, we think we earn, we think we are the captains of our own destinies, but Lord, we as believers come before you confessing and acknowledging our utter dependence upon you. And so because we see your loving kindness and how you care for us, because we have a debt we could never repay, because we are indeed glad to be called the children of God and so many more reasons, we come in this act of worship giving unto you for what we have. It all belongs to you. We thank you for caring for us and entrusting us with it. And we pray that you would now take and use these things for your glory and your purposes in Jesus' name. Amen. Please turn in, Matthew, in your Bibles to Matthew, or turn in Matthew to chapter 5, however you want to phrase that. Matthew five twenty one is our passage before us today. This is God's word to us. Matthew five twenty one. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before before the altar and go. First, be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you're going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. This is the word of God. That's it, Jess. Thank you for leading us. This is a new element in our liturgy. I should have given some instruction before, but Jess was on it. I would like for us to confess and proclaim that this is God's good word to us. And so after I finish reading the scriptures, we'll follow Jess's example. This is the word of God. Let's, let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word to us. And we acknowledge that we cannot discern or understand or gain from it apart from your spirit's work. Your word is powerful. It will not... Uh, it will, it will accomplish all of its purposes. It's in no way void. But yet, you have attended by your Spirit to give us understanding and insight. And so, we're not coming this morning in our own power, own strength, our own wisdom, but we're coming dependent upon you and asking your Spirit to come and give us that understanding. Give us ears to hear and hearts to receive and respond. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Please be seated. We're working through Matthew, and in particular right now, the Sermon on the Mount. And so the text that's before us today begins what we could call corrective teaching that Jesus does. Uh, There are six sections. This is the first of six that he will do. And what he is accomplishing through this is not, as we saw last week, he didn't come to abolish the law, but, but to fulfill it. And so now what he's doing is correcting the misunderstandings, the misinterpretations of the law. It's important for us to keep this in mind because we want to 
respond in the same way, that these are not new laws, but rather clarifications of what the originals meant. Remember, we've, we've peeked at some of this already. Jesus was questioned about his authority constantly in his earthly ministry. And uh, already early in his teaching ministry, he is expressing his authority by doing this. The, we looked at the word amen, truly, truly, I say to you, it's in this passage as well, that he would begin with that rather than end with that. And there are so many other ways. And so as the people ask this question again and again, Uh, Where's your authority from? Why do you speak this way? How do you speak this way? Jesus began to reveal more and more in his claims as to who he was. And as those who realized this did, we can understand why it made sense then that he would be in a position to bring clarity to the law, to speak about such manners. And it's not only logical, but it's necessary. And so it's for our good to listen to this as well. I think there's more here than simply individual clarifications of individual commandments. And we're going to see this over uh, the next few weeks as we look at these six elements that he he addresses here in the Sermon on the Mount. I would call them proverbial clarifications. Not only do they provide clarification to the specific commandment that he addresses in each case, but he also sets for an example a, a proverbial clarification of how we are to approach the law. Our tendency with that little legalist inside all of our hearts is to get as narrow as we can. How far up to the edge of the cliff can I get before I fall over? That's just our tendency, our our, our natural tendency. And so what he's saying is the, the law as it is spoken has kind of a ripple effect. And it touches way more than we're willing to acknowledge. And wisdom would declare not... How, how close can I get to the edge, but rather how can I see danger and stay far, far away from it in breaking God's law? So there's a proverbial element here in these clarifications that God wants not just the letter of the law, uh, not just external conformity to the law, but he wants our hearts. He wants our hearts to be completely his, to grow in affection, to delight in obedience, to, to desire him above all else. And so we see this in how he addresses the uh, commandment against murder, that he takes it to anger, what precedes murder, anger. And so he, uh, he equates the two uh, before God. And we'll see uh, similar patterns in the following examples. The scriptures include rules. We understand that. They are good rules and they are for our good. But the scriptures are not primarily a rule book. We tend to turn it into that because we like rules. We like knowing exactly where the lines are. And so many people see it as a rule book rather than the revelation of God's plan of redemption, the story of the gospel, everything uh, reaching its climax in Jesus Christ. Of course, with our inclination to rules and rule following, we do this not only with the scriptures, we do it in every element of life. I have never gotten more feedback on any one illustration than I did last week uh, it was interesting. The comments varied from, I never knew that was a law, to, oh, that's my pet peeve too. And then I proceeded to get texts all week long. People discovered bumper stickers, memes, uh, all kinds of things about left lane drivers. And so uh, I appreciated all of those. But that's a perfect example of where we take the letter of the law. And we're like, throw the book at them. Get out of my way. But don't, don't press the book against me for speeding in the left lane or for angrily cutting them off in the right lane as I look over with an insult on my face. 
What about in the HOA? You know, we all want the book to be thrown at the minor infractions of the neighbors, but, but not against us. You know, we have that, that one little thing, you know, overlook us. Corporate manual, we want so many of our coworkers to read it a few extra times because they just don't seem to get it. But, but disregard what, how we may uh, go against it. We love our policies. We love our rules. We love our guidelines when it helps us gets our, get our way or demonstrate how righteous we are, right? We all want a gold star. We all want to be noticed for being righteous. This isn't to say that rules are bad. We all know better. Rules, policies, guidelines serve in many helpful ways to protect us, to, to bring order, protect us from others, protect us from ourselves, bring order and structure. We understand that one use of the law is to show us how to live. Um, we, you know, understand that we, as created immoral, at least as believers, because we are moral creatures and sin has wrecked all of this, that we need, uh, we need the law to guard us as well, another use of the law. But even for unbelievers who recognize that there are things that are good for all and things that are destructive in society, uh, we have rules. And you see this in almost every culture and throughout history. And so murder is one of these things that is understood almost universally throughout time and throughout history and throughout cultures as wrong and destructive. And I don't know if that's why Jesus starts with this one or if there was another reason, but it certainly makes sense Uh, because of the principle that he draws out of this, taking us kind of behind the scenes to what is growing in our hearts in anger. Later on in Matthew 15, Jesus would say, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, and slander. And so it is in the heart where law-breaking originates. It's in the heart where sin grows. It's in the heart where sinful desires are sinful, even if they never develop into an action. As I mentioned last week, it was not a new t- teaching that God's desire is for our hearts, not just our external conformity, although it may have seemed this way to the people of Jesus' day. And so, and, and I would say in sense, I think we're always in danger of losing this. I joke about the little legalist, but we all know he's there. I mean, he's just going to pop his head up no matter how we come at it. Uh, we, we want to, to make sure that we're righteous in our own power. Even as believers, we forget that we're called to faith in Christ alone. That there's, we don't contribute an ounce. Uh, we, we don't add anything to the equation except our sin. Uh, and so we default back to wanting to earn our righteousness, feel justified. We want to feel right like we did something. But this was not a new teaching. This was not something that Jesus brought newly in his coming. We see this in the Old Testament in numerous passages. The people had forgotten these words. Proverbs 7, 1, My son, keep my words and treasure up my commandments with you. Keep my commandments and live. Keep my teaching as the apple of your eye. Bind them on your fingers. Write them on the tablet of your heart. If we just took the first of those three verses, we might think it was performance-driven that it was self-righteousness. But he says, write them on the tablet of your heart. He's working his way down to where we need to dig down and do the work. Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, And the Lord your God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul that you may live. That's what God desires. Proverbs 16, 2, All the ways of man are pure in his own eyes, but the Lord weighs the spirit or the heart 
1 Kings 11.9, And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord. Proverbs 17.3, The crucible is for silver and the furnace for gold, and the Lord tests the hearts. Yes, God calls us to obey his word and keep his commandments, but he calls out his people for not doing so with joy. Deuteronomy 28.47, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart. And so while this particular passage puts the focus on murder and specifically on anger, it drills down to anger, the precedent that it sets, as well as for the next passages that follow, is that God desires our hearts to be completely His, delighting to love and worship Him, joyously obeying Him, and gratefully receiving His mercy and salvation. And so with this, let's look now at verse 21 where we read, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. The pattern of you have heard it said, but I say to you, that we see in this beginning one is present in all six, uh, as we'll see. It's not fully expressed in every one. But as you know, when people are speaking publicly, they repeat the same concept but often phrase it in different ways. So the pattern is here in all six of these. You've heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus is clarifying or correcting what were misunderstandings or misinterpretations of the law. He points back to the use, uh, by the use of, to those of old, taking us back in our memory to when the law was given through Moses, pointing back to those people who received it. And then what the rabbis, didn't take them long to begin teaching letter of the law, letter of the law, letter of the law with each commandment or literal uh, uh, following of the law. You understand that literal is not the problem. I mean, of course we follow it literally. We, we aren't to murder. L- literal is not the problem. It's that, it's that it's just not our literal interpretation. Because if it were, as we're going to see later, when Jesus says, don't say you fool or to whoever says you fool, what would we do if that, was, if, that was, if that was the letter of the law? What would all of us do? Pick a synonym, right? We'd just pick a, we'd just pick a different word. And then if somebody said, well, don't say that word either, we'd just pick another word. Think of how curse words develop throughout history. Don't think too hard about curse words. Think about how our, you know, our curse words develop throughout history and what was once not a curse word is now and what was once isn't now and, and so forth. It's, it's the heart behind this stuff. This is what Jesus is getting at. An example where he unfolds this even more clearly, and I want to bring this up now because I think it will be helpful in understanding each of these six examples, is in Matthew 15 where Jesus quotes the fifth commandment, to honor father and mother. And then he says this, But you say, if anyone tells his father or his mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God, he need not honor his father. That's what the rabbis had been teaching. That is, mom and dad, I've got my budget worked out, and um, I'm not going to be able to help you uh, as you age. You understand this culture didn't have retirement savings. It wasn't parents helping kids. It was kids helping parents as they entered into old age. I don't know. Maybe you take that and talk to your kids about it. But uh, at this point in history, that's the way it was done. And what they were doing to follow the letter of the law was to dismiss their parents and say, I don't have anything to help you with because that line item in my budget's going over here to, to God. Following the letter of the law, I gotta, I, I've got to give this money rather than following the spirit of honor your father and mother. So to, to this, Jesus says, So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God, you hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. 
And so here Jesus addresses the problem that we've already been talking about already. They, they, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Yes, it is possible for us to keep God's commandments and our hearts to be far from him. Maybe it's because we want the praise of men. We put on a performance. We, we all do this. I mean, the, the old joke that's been told too many times in sermons, you know, the husband and wife fight all the way to church and then put on the smile and come in. Well, good morning, good morning. And all the kids see that. We, we, you know, we all had parents. We all remember this if you went to church. And if, if you went to church as a married couple, you'd done it, right? We can honor God with our lips and our hearts be far from him. Maybe it's because we want the praise of others. Maybe we want to imagine that we've kept the commandments ourselves, that desire to feel justified thinking that somehow we can make God our debtor. But he instead wants us to draw near to him with sincerity and in love, humbly. Go back to the beginning. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn over sin. Go back to the Beatitudes, just a a few verses up. This is what God wants from us. And so in this passage that's before us today, Jesus follows the same pattern as we see here in Matthew 15, quoting the sixth commandment, which forbids murder, and then explaining uh, through these examples that follow uh, what that looks like. None of this abolishes the law, but rather it affirms the law. And so he shows them how their hearts were cold toward God, even as they could say, I've I've never murdered anyone, even as we might say the same thing, yet their hearts were filled with anger. Which is why he goes on in verse 22 to say, but I say to you, Everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. With each of these, he's taking the language of the sixth commandment, will be liable to judgment. And now he's applying liable to judgment, counsel, damnation, hell, right? Just those three things is what he, he expands this to help us understand it. The indictment here is not against murder. He doesn't undo that. He shows how the indictment is further. It goes at the heart level. It's against anger. And we can understand this as sinful anger. We understand there is a righteous anger. There is such a thing as righteous anger. But as I say often, our anger is rarely righteous, although I think we think it is a lot more than it is. There is a righteous anger, and righteous anger is against sin. It's against evil. But here the unrighteous anger is directed differently, as we'll see. Righteous anger would never lead to murderous thoughts, insults, let alone the act of homicide. So if that's where our heart's going, calling people names, insulting them, uh, thinking of them as less than, worthless, or whatever, let alone murderous thoughts, that's not righteous anger no matter how you qualify it. Righteous anger is not going to take us there. Uh, We have to admit our anger is almost always sinful or tainted with sin. Uh, our hearts are so fickle. We think for a moment, you know, it's, it's kind of like the thing, the, the minute that you think you have humility, you've lost it. It's that way with righteous anger. I mean, the minute that you, you become self-righteous in it, 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 is, it is so, so slippery. Uh, this is why we need a Savior. This is why we need a Redeemer. Uh, it's because we, we, do, we miss the mark again and again and again. Now, the judgment against sinful anger, by the use of language here, Jesus is equating to the judgment against the act of murder in the sixth commandment. And he does so in this three, in, in kind of three levels. The first is everyone who is angry with his brother. And this is broad enough to include uh, any sinful anger directed at another person. 
It's broad enough to include all of us, even if we could say I've never said an insult to someone else or whatever with the other examples. Uh, It may only be inward. No one else knows. I've never let it come out of my mouth, as we see in the second and the third one. And yet he still says that we are liable to judgment. Again, again, the judgment that is due is equated to the judgment of the sin of murder. In verse 6, don't miss that use of language, how he connects the two. The second in the ESV is translated, whoever insults his brother. Uh, some of your translations might bring the Greek word in of raka, whoever says to his brother raka. Uh, raka is an insult. It can be translated as idiot or buffoon. Uh, it means empty-headed parents. I hope I'm not giving your kids, young kids, any extra words for their vocabulary, just trying to pick some, some fairly safe ones. I mean, frankly, you probably have given them that already in the traffic right here. Uh, I'm kidding. Uh, but the, the, the word, the actual word that we use isn't the problem. It is the heart behind the word. Again, what would we do if the word was the problem? We'd just come up with another synonym, words that didn't exist before that we use now. The heart behind it is, you idiot. Now, you may not use the word idiot. You may have another word, but you understand the heart that I'm speaking of. It's the heart that leads us to express this to the person who won't go when the light turns green. Uh, I'll say it again, the person riding in the left lane that won't get over. Uh, it could be addressed to another coworker, another family member, a friend. I think most ashamedly uh, for us as parents, how many have thought or uttered such life-sucking insults at our own children or children to their parents. And while the word brother is used, it is not limited to our brother alone. Again, that's where our legalistic heart wants to go, right? If I can just say, well, I've never said that to my brother, uh, but my sister or, <laughs> or to another person, uh, we, we, can, we think we can let it slide. It at the very least includes all family, familial relationships and those in the household of faith. But I think it's broader than that, and I think most agree uh, with that, that thought and, and from, from my, my studies this week. And I think that this is in part to what we see in Genesis 9-6, when God gave an explanation for why murder must be forbidden. So long before the law of God was ever given, he said to Noah, Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. This is why murder must be forbidden. This is why unjust killing is wrong, because humans are made in the image of God. So for this reason, the word brother should be understood very broadly to include any person that we might level an insult at. And the judgment here is listed as the council. The word that's used here is the same word as Sanhedrin, uh, where we get, uh, it, it actually is Sanhedrin in the Greek, but it's where we would use that. I think that, that translators put council here, here because there's an understanding that this isn't limited to the Sanhedrin. Even if you never get caught, even if you never get busted, even if the law of the land, the Sanhedrin, uh, is not, doesn't have a law against anger that there is a council before which you will find judgment one day. And as we look to the third one, the judgment is taken even further to the hell of fire. And we know that only the heavenly council, that only God can pronounce such a judgment on a human. So the council here, I think, is rightly the heavenly council. The third example is whoever says, you fool. So if the second is leveled as an insult against one's intelligence, the third is leveled in a moral sense against one's heart or worth. The word that we see used here is where we get our English word moron. 
It is an expression of worthlessness. And I want to say it again, the word is not the problem because we have many other words to express the same sentiment. Uh, And even the expression of foolishness isn't a problem because we see Jesus do this himself. So what is the distinction? Well, going back to Genesis 9, 6, the suggestion that someone is worthless who has been created in the image of God, uh, either through thought, word, or deed, ultimately murder, is against God because he has created these people in his image. Everyone, everyone created in his image. So we don't get off the hook because we, you know, they're the wrong political party. We don't get, they don't get off the hook because they're from somewhere else. We don't get off the hook for any reason that we come up with justifying someone who has been made in the image of God, which is all people. We don't get off the hook for this. We are not to call someone else or imply that someone else is worthless. It is unrighteous for us to think or speak in any manner that calls someone else trash, worthless, or good for nothing. Proverbs 17.5, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. You see how all this stuff was in the Old Testament all along? I mean, right there. You know, how easy it is, is it from childhood to pick on someone who has less than you? Or, you know, my daddy's stronger than you. My daddy makes more money than you. All the playground insults that occurred, not just on our playgrounds, but probably the same were were, were happening on young uh, uh, Jewish playgrounds uh, back in Jesus' day, whatever, you know, monkey bars or whatever play toys that they had. The same insults were likely happening there. And so here it was all the way back in the Old Testament. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. Why? Because God has made people in his image. And so the judgment that's listed here is that we'll be liable to the hell of fire. And the word used for for hell is Gehenna. It's commonly used uh, as as a kind of a word picture uh, for what hell was. Gehenna was this valley that went out of the south side of Jerusalem. It was was served as the dump or the landfill. That's where everybody threw their trash, and and it was on fire all the time. It just burned uh, continually. And so it paints this, this grave picture of damnation for anyone who would insult another in such a manner. And so because of the seriousness of this pronouncement and because we all should recognize our guilt in this manner, I mean, no one can read this passage and walk away and say, i got clean hands, never done any of that. I mean, we're, we're all guilty of anger. And so because of the seriousness, that we, we see our need for a Redeemer. Yet Jesus has even more to say about anger in our lives. He's going to expand it even, even further. And he does this through two illustrations, beginning in verse 23. He talks about one who has come to the temple to worship through an offering, through a gift. Now, how we would expect him to phrase this, or I think we would expect him to phrase it, is different than what he says. He says, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, He doesn't say if you're angry at someone. Now he flips it around, says if someone has something against you. And so this implies that we're not only to fight against our own anger, but we're to be peacemakers, seeking to prevent and overcome anger in the hearts of others when someone has something against you. Now we might think that we have to wait for that person to come to us, but it sounds like Jesus says, you stop, you get up. You go and make amends, make things right. Seek to work things out with this other. There's an immediate 
immediacy to the instruction. Leave your gift there before the altar. Go. First be reconciled to your brother and then come back and offer your gift. Please don't get up right now. But the implication is that in our gathered public worship, if you realize there's undealt issues, things that have not been taken care of, you ought to get up and leave. Please don't. But you ought to in the sense of that Jesus is conveying that's how important it is. Get up, go, and deal with it. Seek to make reconciliation. Seek to be a peacemaker. And then come back and give your offering. Or for us, participate in worship. And so implied here in this is that our worship is hindered when we try and come and just fake it and we leave things undealt with. So deal with things, whether seeking forgiveness or granting it. Don't, don't, it's, this is not just about seeking forgiveness for what you've done wrong. It's also about granting forgiveness for someone who's come to you and asked for it. Don't let your offenses be prolonged, Jesus says. Then come back and engage in public worship and know that God has forgiven your sins, whether the sin of anger against someone or what you have done to lead to the, the anger in their hearts. The second illustration involves a legal matter. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. So the accuser here is anyone. This is where he cuts down even deeper. He doesn't even use the word brother. He, he, he lets his hearers understand that accuser usually had the connotation of enemy. That, that you know, you, you, I've used brother the whole time. You think this is just brother? No, 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 no. This is anyone, anyone who would come and accuse you. And so what he's drawing on is that in the current time, if, if someone owed someone else a financial debt, hadn't been paid, the civil court could step in and jail the person until it was fully, uh, restitution was fully made. So the implication is, again, not our anger, but the anger of someone against us, that, that we owe them a debt, and they're angry for us not paying it. So we're to be peacemakers, not just abolishing sin in our own hearts, but seeking, so far as it depends upon you, to live at peace with all men, seeking to help others overcome their anger. Come to terms quickly. There's that language of immediacy again. Make friends with is another way of translating this. And, and, and we're, the idea here is God considers this so serious that he commands us to go and do it immediately, even, even leaving our offering on the altar in Old Testament worship to go and deal with it. Now, he's using earthly consequences. He's using an example that people could, could, could follow, they could understand. But he is speaking about spiritual matters as well. There are implications beyond just the fact that, that, you know, we need to make amends with each other. John Stott writes, We must never allow an estrangement to remain, still less to grow. We must not delay to put it right. We must not even allow the sun to set on our anger. But immediately, as soon as we are conscious of a broken relationship, we must take the initiative to mend it, to apologize for the grievance we have caused, to pay the debt we, we have left unpaid, to make amends. And these extremely practical instructions, Jesus drew out from the sixth commandment as its logical implications. That's the beauty of this. He, he expands the sixth commandment, doesn't abolish it. If we want to avoid committing murder in God's sight, we must take every possible positive step to live in peace and love with all men. Yet, how often do we let stuff go? 
We live with deep-rooted anger that often turns to bitterness in our hearts, just fail to acknowledge it, pretend it's not there. Or we might, in interacting with other people, just play a game. We just, everything's okay, put on a smiley face, pretend nothing's wrong. We might be tempted to gossip about the offense to others, never talk to the person that we're at odds with. And in all such cases, we are in sin. Because Jesus makes it very clear here that we are to go and be at peace. He concludes this exhortation with the lasting consequence. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out of prison until you have paid the last penny. We talked about this a little bit last week when Jesus uses truly or verily, verily. If you're looking at the King James or memorize things in the King James, it's the word from where we get amen, uh, usually uttered at the end of things that we agree with. Jesus takes it, puts it on the beginning to speak with authority, to say these things are absolutely true. Make no mistake. This is a true statement. It's not only true with our relationship with other people, but it's true with all of our sins. If restitution for our sins has not been made, the damnation of the fires of hell will be our just reward. We will not get out until every last penny has been paid. That is, it is eternal judgment. Yet God in His mercy and great love for His people sent forth His Son to be the atonement, the propitiation for our sins, to pay for the wrath that we deserved for our sins. Again, none of us can come to this passage and walk away from it and think, I'm innocent. I haven't broken the law. We have all been guilty of these very things and others. Each of us have been angry in our hearts. We've insulted other people, even if it was just in our minds. We've expressed murderous thoughts and intents Yet while we were sinners, Christ died to atone for those very sins, to satisfy the just wrath of God. And we have only to come to Him in faith, trusting in Christ alone and His work for us to be saved. And so for you who have never done that, consider the claims of Christ today and hear the call to be saved, to put your trust in Christ today. For you who have believed, this, this could be a heavy sermon, so this is how I want to end. Know that in Christ Jesus, your sins are forgiven. Even if they were 35 minutes ago on the way to the service, or an hour and five minutes ago on the way to the service, or however long, no matter what you have said, done, thought in your heart, that in Christ your sins are forgiven. He has cleansed us from all unrighteousness, including our sinful anger, our unleashing of insults, and our declarations of worthlessness against those who are created in His image. He has washed us clean from our sins of omission as well where we have treated often through neglect those that we deem less than. And so we should respond with hearts that mourn over our sin, with repentant hearts, and then be filled with thankfulness and gratefulness that in Christ our sins are dealt with. Our saving God is great and full of mercy. His compassion, His love, His mercy know no bounds. And to us, he declares, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. 
For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Let's pray. Father, thank you for washing us clean, for forgiving our sins in Christ Jesus. Jesus, thank you for coming to die, to take the wrath that we deserved so that we might walk in forgiveness. Because frankly, Lord, if there is any one sin pattern that covers all the bases in any audience, in any period of time, in any culture, angers it. We don't have to look very far back in our history. We are guilty. So we confess that today. I pray that for those who do not trust Christ, they would be awakened to new life, to see, to desire, and to respond to what Christ has done for them, to be washed, to be renewed, to be reborn. And for us who do believe, Lord, would you refresh us with the forgiveness of our sins? Because sometimes, Lord, we don't believe it. We can't believe it. We struggle to believe it. How can you forgive us yet again? We've blown it again. We did it on the way to church. Or maybe we do it 10 minutes from now when we leave, and yet you forgive again and again. So, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that we can walk in newness of life. But, Lord, we desire not to be angry people, not to harbor anger in our hearts, not to insult others. And while we may not grow at the rate that we wish, we thank you for your sanctification in our lives that is transforming us, making us ever aware of our need to depend upon you in those moments of stress or those moments of surprise or whatever it is where we are so tempted to respond in an outburst of fury and anger and insult. So, Lord, would you sanctify us in this area and continually refresh and renew us that we can see that we are recipients of your mercy, that you have created all people in your image, and we are in no position to ever righteously insult someone in a sinful manner like we have looked at today. Fill us with your love, Lord. Give us your mercy that we may reflect and overflow that mercy to others. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing our response.